All right. Good morning. We are in the book of Acts. We're right at the end of chapter 6 and into chapter 7 here. Um, Today we're going to look at the longest speech in the book of Acts. It will be given by a man we just met and who soon in the story will no longer be with us. So it'll be given by a man that few Christians ever really think about and a man we rarely if ever quote. Today we're going to learn all we know about Stephen and Stephen is the first Christian martyr. We met him last week. He was the most prominent of the men chosen to serve bread to the church widows. He was the first of the seven men who were of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom as it says in verse 3 of chapter 6. And only Stephen has more said about his qualities on that list. Uh, Verse 5 says they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. The other guys just have that general thing, but of Stephen particularly, it it adds more. A man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Stephen's name, that's a Greek name, which may mean that he was, may mean he was not a native of Israel. We don't know that for sure, but he, um, he may have come to Jerusalem from one of the many Jewish communities throughout the Roman Empire. If so, he would have read a Greek Bible and understood the Greco-Roman world and the place of Jews in that world. We also learned that after the apostles laid their hands on the men, Stephen received the power to work miracles just like the apostles did. And that could happen. If the apostles laid hands on you, they could transfer that power. It didn't happen to everybody, but um, anybody they ordained, but it did happen to Stephen. Verse eight, it says, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. And it actually uses that word great powers, mega wonders there. So that's quite a gift the apostles could pass on according to the will of the Holy Spirit. So Stephen stood out in the Jerusalem church. He could not only work miracles, but he was an exceptional orator, a man of great faith. He was an evangelist. He was an apologist. An apologist is somebody that can defend the faith and stand up to uh, answer critics and explain things. And I think from what we see here, he, he made efforts to reach the Greek speaking community for Christ, that Greek Jewish community in Jerusalem. So we find him in verse 9 and it says, but some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. So we know there were synagogues devoted to Greek speaking culture in Jerusalem. In fact, about 100 years ago, they actually uncovered the remains of one in Jerusalem and there's, a, there's an inscription on it carved in stone describing what that synagogue is and let me read it for you. It says Theodotus the son of Vetinos, a priest and the head of the synagogue son of the head of the synagogue who was also the son of the head of the synagogue built the synagogue for the reading of the law and for the studying of the precepts as well as the hospice and the chambers and the bathing establishment establishment for lodging those who need them from abroad. It, the synagogue, was founded by his ancestors and the elders and Simonides. So it was not only a synagogue, it was actually a place to house those who came from outside the Holy Land. So if they came to the temple on pilgrimage or to worship there for a special feast or something like that, they could live there bathe there, uh, stay there during their their time there to uh, go to the temple. So that the Greek culture Jews had their own places of worship, their own synagogues. These are the kind of people we find 
Stephen in heavy conversation with in verse 9. And these particular Greek speaking Jews were from all over Africa and the eastern part of the Roman Empire and Luke actually mentions the Cyrenians that would be Libya. There was a huge Jewish population in Libya that area. And Alexandrians that's Egypt Alexandria the great where the great library of the ancient world was very scholarly community of Jews lived there very cultured very educated and um, Jewish believers in Alexandria tended to try to blend the Old Testament the law of Moses with Greek philosophy interpreting it in the light of Greek philosophy and trying to kind of weld those things together Christians later did the same thing in Alexandria it's sort of a a trend there because it's in this intellectual sort of place and then uh, Luke mentions and there were some from Cilicia and Asia So, so those are places that are today are in modern day Turkey in those days it was Asia Minor so they're going at it they're having this discussion the word argued doesn't necessarily imply that there was anger there it it is a discussion with opposing sides a reasoning uh, an informal debate maybe the best word is a disputation there it's the kind of conversation I've had many times with people from other faiths Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and unbelievers and things like that it doesn't have to be tense it doesn't have to be angry just people asking questions of each other and making their case and um, discussing things so what do you think they were talking about these Greek synagogue Jews and Stephen well they'd be talking about Jesus right he'd be talking about Jesus as the Messiah Jesus as the resurrected Lord the ascended Lord Um, they would have talked about the Jewish relationship to this new uh, movement the church is it is it acceptable for a Jew to embrace Jesus and uh, those kind of questions so this disputation I'm sure lasted a while but Luke tells us that Stephen was coming out on top so verse 10 they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking so now in a dispute like this that's kind of a dangerous moment um, nobody likes to be bested in a, in a debate or a discussion and apparently um, Stephen was coming out on top and if you remember uh, in chapter 5 the, the, the church was being tolerated after Gamaliel's speech tolerated barely I mean those in power still held strong feelings against the early church especially the high priest and his cronies and you'll remember Caiaphas the high priest let the apostles go but only after he had them beaten so um, I'm sure they were still looking for a way to crush the new Jesus movement well they get their opportunity because the hardest thing to fight when the judges hate you the hardest thing to fight is slander against you and those from the synagogue of the freedmen turned to their anger um, they're being stung by having lost this debate Uh, they turned to wicked means to get victory over Stephen so verse 11 says then they secretly induced men to say we have heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and against God and they stirred up the people the elders and the scribes and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council so they got everybody riled up by saying Stephen blasphemed against Moses God's lawgiver and even God himself and if that's true blasphemy like that would be worthy of death according to the Old Testament but how can they convict Stephen of those kinds of things um, well the same way they tried to get Jesus by false witnesses 
Verse 13, they put forward false witnesses who said this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. So now the witnesses are accusing Stephen of incessantly speaking against the temple and the law. Like that's his goal in life is to knock the temple and the law. So don't forget um, what the accusations are because when we're going to look at this long speech in chapter 7 that Stephen gives he's responding really to those accusations. So Stephen is taken before the most powerful court in Israel. We've been here many times. Jesus stood before these people. The apostles stood before these people. Um, and Peter and John stood there, just the two of them. So it seems like the place to be for Christians, right? It's an intimidating place. There's a semicircle of staircase um, sort of seating and there's all these men sitting around in these seats looking at you and, uh, and they're not happy with him. But Stephen is not trembling. Uh, Luke says something really interesting. It just kind of appears here in verse 15. It sounds very much like an eyewitness account here. And I, there's a good reason to believe that. It says in verse 15, fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. I'm not sure what that means, except that he obviously isn't shaken, right? It's very likely that Luke's dear friend and companion Paul who was once a Pharisee named Saul was there in that room. We know he was there that day so he might have been in that very room and it could be that he's describing Stephen's face at that moment that he saw when he was a vigorous and antagonistic opponent of Christianity. So what do you think the face of an angel would look like? I'm trying to think about that, you know. Would it be determined and confident? Would it be gentle and loving? Would it be serene or intense? Uh, I don't really know. Uh, William MacDonald, the commentator, maybe he described it the best in sort of a general way. He said, they saw the mysterious beauty of a life that is fully surrendered to the Lord, determined to proclaim the truth, and more concerned with what God thinks than what men might say. That's a good description. And that's something like what we should be like today, isn't it? Shouldn't we all strive to be like Stephen in that moment? So now we move to chapter 7 after all the testimony, the false testimony is done. Caiaphas gives Stephen a chance to speak and it was his right to do so. So chapter 7 verse 1, the high priest said, are these things so? Well what things? Whatever he's being accused of, right? We talked about those things he was accused of. Stephen is ready and you read in chapter 7 and you really get uh, what it said in chapter 6 verse 10 where it described the wisdom and the spirit that guided Stephen's words. You can see it here as he starts to speak. And before we dive in I think it's worth pondering why in the book of Acts, so Luke's got 28 chapters, he devotes an entire long chapter, a lot of space to Stephen's defense. I mean this is the longest speech in the book of Acts. It's longer than the day of Pentecost sermon. It's longer than the Acts 3 sermon. It's longer than Paul's sermons later on in the book. Um, Why? Well I think it's because it's answering the question is Jesus and the church against Moses and the Old Testament or a fulfillment of it. That's really the idea there. He answers a lot of questions that, that Jews might have about how Christians are regarding the Old Testament and, and Stephen is going to treat the Old Testament like it's absolutely true and it's God's word and there's nothing missing in it or wrong about it 
And uh, he speaks in a very classic Hebrew style. It's, it's called a historic retrospective. He's just going to walk them through a big part of their history. You don't see that much in the New Testament. Although the book of Hebrews has little sections that are sort of like that. But it's a summary retelling of the history of Israel. It's a way of speaking back then that was often used in these kind of situations. Psalm 78 is a really good example. And Psalm 107 is a good example. But here he's got a very specific purpose. What God is doing today as a direct extension of his work in the past. That's where Stephen's going. He never gets to finish this sermon as you'll see. But it's this, this talk. So Stephen goes from the calling of Abraham right up to Solomon's temple. Why would he want to stop there at Solomon's temple? Well one of the accusations is what? That he's blaspheming against the temple right? In the law. So you can basically break down the speech into three parts. He talks about the patri- patriarchal times from verse 2 to verse 16. He talks about Moses and the law from verse 17 to verse 43. Then he talks about the tabernacle and the temple that followed it in verse 44 through 50. So there's a lot there right? So remember now the accusations are he speaks blasphemous words against Moses and against God and he incessantly speaks against this holy place the temple and the law. So let's begin. Stephen starts with a pretty straightforward telling of the Abraham story verse 2 and you'll notice how thoroughly versed he is in the Old Testament how well he knows Genesis he said hear me brethren and fathers the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him move to this country in which you are now living. But he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. And yet, even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke to this effect, that his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land, and that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. That's actually in uh, Genesis chapter 15 where God tells him that. Verse 7. And whatever nation to which they will be in bondage. I myself will judge said God. And after that they will come out and serve me in this place. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac. And circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob. And Jacob of the twelve patriarch so it's really a solid retelling of the Abrahamic story in Genesis he he quotes freely and um, accurately from the Greek Old Testament so Stephen affirms the call of Abraham the promise of the land the prophecy of the years and bondage that was given to Abraham the covenant of circumcision and the descendants of the promise the, the, the 12 founders of Israel and the 12 tribes So if there's a theme in here I think it would be that Abraham unquestioningly followed God in what God was doing and the things that God had called him to do. So no matter how strange or how different it makes your life I mean Abraham had to travel farther than he'd ever been away from his home to a new place you follow God you do what God is wanting you to do. So now the second portion talks about Joseph. Joseph is one of the sons of Jacob. So the story of Joseph is interesting because of the persecution that he endured at the hands of his jealous brothers, the fathers of Israel. Notice how much 
Stephen is going to talk about our fathers in his message here. Verse 9. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. Yet God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh king of Egypt and made him a governor over Egypt and all his household. Verse 11. Now a famine came over all of Egypt and Canaan and great affliction with it and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt he sent our fathers there the first time. On the second visit Joseph made himself known to his brothers and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent word and invited Jacob his father and all his relatives to come to him. 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt and there he and the fathers died. From there they were removed to Shechem and laid in the tomb which Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. So what's Stephen saying? That God was superintending all of these works. He prophesied that this was going to happen. These are all things that are coming to fulfill the promises that were made. He, God is always in control. He's always at work. God has had to work around sinful and disobedient people time and time again even among the patriarchs the founding members of the tribes of Israel they all sold their brother into slavery Um, so being chosen by God being a, a follower of the true God or proclaiming your belief in him that doesn't mean that whatever you do is right God spoke to Joseph but his brothers hated him for that yet God was with him that might sort of fit Stephen's circumstance here. Maybe the hatred being shown to Stephen by his accusers wasn't right. Maybe that was mere jealousy. Let's move on to the third portion. It's about Moses. And watch how Stephen gives a very accurate and straightforward account of Moses' life as well. Remember he's been accused specifically of, at this point he was accused of speaking blasphemous words against Moses. But you'll see he knows all about Moses and appreciates Moses and values Moses and um, tells his whole story. So his speech about Moses really shows an intimate knowledge of the Bible and a profound respect for Moses. So watch for the particular emphasis also that comes around verse 35. You'll notice something there. So verse 17. But as the time of the promise was approaching which God had assured to Abraham the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. It was he who took shrewd advantage of our race and mistreated our fathers so that they would expose their infants and they would not survive. It was at this time that Moses was born and he was lovely in the sight of God and he was nurtured three months in his father's home and after he had been set outside Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians and he was a man of power in words and deeds. But when he was approaching the age of 40 it entered his mind to visit his brethren the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him. But they did not understand On the following day he appeared to them as they were fighting together and he tried to reconcile them in peace saying men you are brethren why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away saying who made you ruler and judge over us? You do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday do you? At this remark Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian 
where he became the father of two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning thorn bush. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight and he approached to look more closely. And there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look. But the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt and have heard their groans and I have come down to rescue them. Come now and I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they disowned saying who made you a ruler and a judge is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. Hmm. Moses was rejected by the people he sought to deliver. Hmm. The one that God had sent to be their ruler, they disowned him. Kind of like the way Joseph's brothers treated him and kind of like the way, hmm, think about Jesus. Let's keep going, verse 36. This man led them out performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brethren. So Moses said they were supposed to expect a prophet like him, a lawgiver, somebody that could change the laws and the rules. Just who else do we know who did signs and wonders and spoke with the authority of the great prophet and lawgiver? Hmm, who could that be? Well, Stephen's not done yet. Verse 38. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers and he received living oracles to pass on to you. Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him but repudiated him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. Remember that happening in the wilderness? That's right. So Stephen's saying our fathers turned against Moses in the wilderness, didn't they? Verse 40, saying to Aaron, make us gods who will go before us for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt. We do not know what will happen to him. At that time, they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. Our fathers, Stephen is saying, actually chose idolatry over the man that God selected, didn't they? So now, having rehearsed these somewhat uncomfortable facts about Israel's past and the behavior of their fathers, Stephen turns to one of the prophets, Amos actually, And he quotes Amos to to sum up the long centuries of Israel having turned to idols. God delivered them up, he says, judicially gave them up to idolatry and to judgment. Verse 42, God turned away and delivered them up to the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. Now he's quoting Amos. It was not was it, it was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness, was it, O house of Israel? You also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the god Ramphah, the images which you made to worship. I will also remove you 
beyond Babylon. So the lesson uh, is that Israel is an idolatrous people. They always turn away from what God is doing. They, they turn away from him. They turn away from his program. They do the very things that he is most displeased with. So this isn't just a recapitulation of Israel's history. It's a purposeful one. And now he moves to the subject of the temple. So the second main charge was that he incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. So let's talk about the temple a little bit. Stephen will now offer a master class on the temple. What is the temple? What's it for? Verse 44. Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness. Just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. And having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it in with Joshua upon dispossessing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. So those are all facts that are revealed in God's word. Now what role does the temple have? Is the temple where God lives um, as the pagans believed it was at a, a paganistic view of the temple? No. And Stephen now quotes Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 66, the first verses there of that chapter, but it's verse 48 here in chapter 7 of Acts. Verse 48, however, He's quoting Isaiah. The most high does not dwell in houses made by human hand. As the prophet says. Heaven is my throne. And earth is my footstool. For my feet. What kind of house will you build for me? Says the Lord. Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? Yes. Just so. So God is not limited in any way. He created all things and he cannot be contained. Stephen could have quoted Solomon who actually built the temple because in the great dedication prayer for the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8 verse 27 Solomon says behold and he's praying to God he says heaven and highest heaven cannot contain you how much less this house that I have built. So the temple is not God and God is not bound to it or contained in it the temple was God's way to be with his people and remind them that he could only be approached through blood because they were sinful and he was holy so the temple was a place for sacrifice it was a way for God to be with his people and remind them about this important distinction between him and them that was its purpose we don't have time this morning but if you want you can go back and read 2 Samuel chapter 7 uh, and maybe when we're done here where God instead of letting David build the temple he actually gives David something greater. The, he get, makes the Davidic covenant with him. After reminding David that God didn't need a temple to take care of him he says I took care of you all these years when I didn't live in a temple. He says um, he, he promises to make David's name great and then he says your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. That's the Davidic covenant. So it was a descendant of David who was going to rule forever. That's the Messiah. He's talking about the Messiah. So it's the messianic kingdom that is at the end of what God is doing. And while a temple might be included in that, it's the king that's the heart of that, not the house, not the building. So the temple has its purposes, but the great purpose is the coming of the Messiah. At this point then, Stephen boldly calls on the great council to own their crimes. 
the crimes they've committed against Jesus just like their fathers committed crimes against Moses and against Joseph and against God himself. They're the ones that were blaspheming against God all these years. So he uses the history of Israelite faithlessness to expose what they're doing today. So verse 51. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law is ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Wow. Uh, You are the violators of the law, he's saying, not me. You always fight against what God is doing, even when he sent the Messiah to you. The righteous one came in your lifetime and you killed him. Your ears are stopped. Your hearts are closed, he says in verse 54. And that's what led to this day and that's what led to this trial. That's what Stephen is saying. Well, you can imagine the response. It's purely emotional. Verse 54. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick. Literally that phrase means cut to the heart. And they began gnashing their teeth at him. And, and folks, this is the sad and tragic end of Israel as a nation until the last days. This is the, them cementing their rejection of everything God had brought to them and offered them in Christ. Ever since the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, the gospel has been offered to the holy city, to God's covenant people, his nation, and It was initially received with great success by many thousands of people that lived there but not all the leaders, none of the leaders, hardly any of the leaders. These are the leaders, the elders and the priests and the theologians and they are stiff-necked, stubborn and they're hard-hearted just like the common lot of humanity. That's why everyone rejects Jesus and only by God's grace can we come to believe because we're stiff-necked and hard-hearted. There's just no humility among them no humility even in the scene. They're just enraged. And humility is the one needful thing. It's really interesting that Stephen quoted Isaiah 66 there. And he stopped actually in the middle of verse 2. I, he, he spoke Isaiah 66 verse 1 and then into verse 2. But then he stopped. If he had kept reading this is what it would have been. Well, let me go back to what he actually said. The Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? And then the very next words in the text are, but to this one will I look. To him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Some of the Bible men there in that room would have remembered that. But here they are in a fit of passion, not for the Lord's sake, but because Stephen pointed out their very refusal to hear and their hard hearts. So they rage at him. And at that moment, God gives Stephen a vision. 
and verse 55. Being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What a moment. What an incredible moment that was. They would have all known that this was a declaration of Jesus' Messiahhood, his Messiahship. Son of Man is the one he sees. That's a messianic title straight out, of, straight out of Daniel 7 where Messiah is in God's presence in that Old Testament text. It just wasn't that long ago in that same room before these same men Jesus used that term about himself, the Son of Man. So the timing of the vision really intrigues me. He, um, God chose this moment for Stephen to peer into heaven. Such a decision has to be made now. There's a choice that has to be made. Either, either Stephen is acting as the prophet or he's a complete deceiver. Now if you had to choose which he was going to be wouldn't you take your time to think that through? Maybe ask more questions? Maybe probe him? It's a time for careful reflection. It's a time for thorough investigation about the claims that he's making. It's a time for humility to reflect on themselves, to listen to what he's saying. But they don't stop to weigh what's being said at all. Gamaliel's advice, and he's probably not there that day, is is just tossed out the window. Verse 57, but they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. There's Luke dropping the name of a man that's going to change the world, uh, Saul. Verse 59, they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. That's a New Testament word for died. What do we learn from Stephen? Well, he spoke the truth. He was not ruled by fear. This is really important in our time. In our cultural moment, our historical moment, we need to have Stephen's boldness, his courage and his love. So we're the bad guys in our culture now and we can't fear. Good people are often the bad guys in a foolish wicked world. Godly people even more so because it's really God that people are despising in their hearts. It's God they're shutting out. It's God they're hardening their hearts against. But Stephen wasn't angry. He wasn't bitter. He wanted what was best for his enemies. That's love. That's what love is. Love is wanting the best for the one you love. And if you love your enemies, you're going to want what's best for them. There's just too much anger in the world today and too much anger coming from Christians sometimes. We need to be like Stephen. Stephen's master said, love your enemies. And he's just being obedient to that. Not reluctantly obedient. He it's in his heart. You can tell. This is the moment of his death. He's being pounded with rocks. Jesus 
was his model for love as when he asked the father to forgive those who were in the act of crucifying him. So Stephen was a true disciple. He learned from him not only to have Jesus as a master but to imitate him in this profound kind of love that Jesus had even for those who hated him. And like Jesus Stephen also knew that love and truth have to go hand in hand. You have to have both. It's not loving to leave people in their sin. That's why he was so bold to point out to them their sin. It's not loving to leave people without a savior. That's why he was prepared to offer them the righteous one and to proclaim to them that Jesus was indeed the one that God had sent that was promised. Stephen is willing to lay down his life to love them with the truth. The truth about their sinfulness, the truth about salvation that's found in Jesus. And he does lay down his life. This other man there, Saul, watching their coats. He was inspired by Stephen's death. Not inspired to live for Jesus. He was inspired by hate to bring the Jesus movement to a quick and painful end. In Acts chapter 8, Saul won't be holding coats anymore. He leads a great wave of persecution. And so it happens that God uses that persecution to get the good news about Jesus out to more and more people. And we'll pick that up next time with this fellow Saul. Let's pray. Father, what a model of courage and clarity that Stephen is. A a bold man, a brave man. Only concerned about the souls of these other men. Not his own life even. And he gave it up willingly. Give us that kind of courage and love. Let them be mixed together in us. And may we be proclaiming the truth whenever you give us opportunity, Lord. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Okay, next week, Acts chapter eight. Hope you're able to keep up. If not, go back and read that through. It's good stuff. See you then.